0: So in Revelation 7, this is where we left off last week, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 7, we were discussing the 144,000 that are listed there, 12,000 from each tribe, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that you see during this time of great tribulation on the earth, 144,000 Jews will be set apart and used by God for His purposes in the great tribulation. And you have it listed out quite clearly there, uh, who's going to be saved, the different tribes and the numbers for each tribe. And we walked through some of these thoughts here and answered these questions, and I I really like this quote from Robert Thomas, so I want to review that again. 144,000 is a definite number in contrast with the indefinite number of chapter 7 verse 9. 7, 9 comes after the listing of the 144,000. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could, could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So that's a heavenly scene. They're around the throne in heaven. They're from all tribes and tongues and nations. And it's a great multitude that no one can count. But before that, on earth, John is saying, there's a specific number, 144,000. During the Great Tribulation, there's a specific number that gets saved out of Israel at this time from these tribes, and that stands in contrast to the countless multitude that's in heaven from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He goes on to say, If it is taken symbolically, no number in the book can be taken literally. As God reserved 7,000 in the days of Ahab... He will reserve 144,000 for himself during the future great tribulation. Okay? Now, before we uh, get going into some other passages, I need four volunteers to read. So, who will be volunteer number one? Mike, can you go to Jeremiah 31, please? A second volunteer, Rex, could you go to Jeremiah 23? Dean, would you go to Zechariah 14? And one more, Mr. Bowman, Romans 11. Alright, so all of us who are not reading, who have not volunteered to read, let's turn to Jeremiah 31 together, and we're just going to track along with those who will be reading for us. Jeremiah chapter 31, and to start we're going to look at the first nine verses of that chapter. Jeremiah 31 verses 1 through 9. So Mike, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read that for us. At that
1: time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword, found the grace of the wilderness, Israel, when it, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him, far from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There I have drawn, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again I will build you, and you will be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, again you will Take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. there will be a day when the watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, Shall among the chiefs of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with a child, and she who is in labor with a child together, a great company. They will return here with weeping they will come. And by supplication I will lead them, I will make them walk by streams of waters, on a street path in which they will not stumble, for I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn.
0: Alright, so this is a, a really marvelous passage for Israel, isn't it? You read through this and there's a whole bunch of blessing that God has in store for the nation of Israel. So now, contrast that with what we were just looking at in Revelation 7, where you have 144,000 getting saved when? During what time period? A time of great tribulation. A time of great tribulation. So you have this tribulation coming upon the whole world. There's a great multitude in heaven from every nation, but on the face of the earth, you have 144,000 Jews. And they're getting saved out of the tribulation. Going through a difficult time, and yet here we're seeing these promises that were given to them back in the Old Testament. Promises for great blessing. Blessing on the earth where they're going to be planting in Samaria. They're going to be dancing with the merrymakers. There's going to be all kinds of good things happening to Israel on the face of the earth. And yet they're in a great tribulation in Revelation 7. So what's going on here? Well, just from a very high level basic view, God is heading heading toward providing these blessings that we just read about in Jeremiah 31. When you look at Israel in the tribulation, Israel is headed toward this great physical restoration in the land. Israel's headed toward this great time of blessing where there will be great merriment, where there will be great prosperity with their agriculture and everything else that we read about in the Old Testament prophets. But first, there comes a time of tribulation, a time of Jacob's distress that the prophet Jeremiah talks about. That must come before this time. And so they will be getting saved... Initially with the 144,000 and then to uh, to expanding that to others. They will be getting saved during this time of tribulation. But they won't experience this time of great physical blessing until after that point. But when you're asking the question, why is God saving the Jews? Why not 144,000 Ethiopians? Why not 144,000 Russians? Because God made the nation of Israel, didn't he? And to this nation he offered these promises, didn't he? And so they are headed toward the fulfillment of these promises. But first must come tribulation. Stay in this chapter, Jeremiah 31, and drop down to verse 31 with me. And I'll read 31 to 40. Listen to what God says is going to happen to his nation. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make to the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know the Lord. They will all know me, God says. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, Then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb, then it will return to Goa, and the whole valley of dead bodies, of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to the Lord. It will not not be plucked up or, or overthrown any more forever. So there's coming a time, God says, When not only will Israel experience a total spiritual restoration, but there will be a physical restoration. And he's mapped out with certain geographical places saying, in this area, there will be a time of total restoration in the land. And Israel is headed toward that as we read the book of Revelation. They are in the midst of great tribulation, of course, but they're headed toward the fulfillment of these promises. It's going to happen. The historical context of this, when you think about when Jeremiah wrote this, it's right before the Babylonian captivity. However, these promises were not fulfilled then. If you remember, Jeremiah casts a prophecy saying for 70 years, Israel is going to be in Babylonian captivity. And was he right? Yes. Yes. Were some of you thinking that Jeremiah the prophet was wrong? <laughs> what does the Bible say about prophets who make wrong prophecies? Okay. Okay. Some of you are about to rip Jeremiah out of your Bible, apparently. Was Jeremiah right about 70 years? Yes. Okay. They were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then what happened after those 70 years? Do you remember?
1: King Darius
2: gave an order to rebuild Jerusalem.
0: Cyrus. Cyrus. Yes, yeah. Cyrus. Set forth a decree. Yes. yes. And he funded it and gave King Cyrus, who was a great Jew. No. (laughs) No. So you have this interesting thing. You have these pagan kings now, starting with Cyrus, who are allowing the Israelites to go back into the land after their Babylonian captivity. And this is in like 500 BC, roughly. Okay? They're allowed to go back into the land. I think it's 515 to be exact. They're allowed to go back into the land. And did you know, not a ton of them went back. After 70 years of being in captivity, even if it's a place that you don't think you would want to be in, you kind of get used to being in that place. And, of course, if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know they intermarried. And you have these families who are all intermixed. This is not the great restoration that Jeremiah was speaking of, is it? Because Jeremiah is speaking of this sweeping restoration that's going to take place in that land. And the Jews that did go back, 40,000 or so, they did start rebuilding there's Zerubbabel's temple that some of you ladies have been studying about in Saturday morning women's breakfast through the prophet Haggai, and then soon through Zechariah, you're going to learn about this. They started rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, but was it this amazing, glorious place that we read about in this prophecy from Jeremiah? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. This isn't happening yet. Okay, and so the prophecies are going to be fulfilled later. Now let's also check out 23, that's what you have, Rex, uh, Mm -hmm. Jeremiah 23, 5-8, and then I'll read Jeremiah 33, 13-18. Now as these are read, I want you to think about what can be understood about Israel's salvation as we add these prophecies to it. Go ahead, Rex.
2: The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up to David's righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah was a saved, was will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which <clears throat> he will be called the Lord of Righteousness. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north, and out of all the countries where he had banished, had banished them,
0: then they will live in their own land. Wow. So there's coming a time of such great restoration in Israel that what God is doing in bringing them back from all these countries where they've been scattered, it's going to overtake the Exodus in its prominence. Did you catch that? Jeremiah said, It's going to be a day where they're no longer going to say the Lord who led them up out of Egypt, but they're going to refer to the Lord as the one who brought them back to the land out of all these other countries where they've been scattered. If you read through the Old Testament over and over and over again, God is referred to as the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That was the big moment in Israel's history. But there's coming such a time of great restoration that will surpass the exodus in prominence. That hasn't happened yet, has it? That has not happened yet, but it's going to happen. And let me read chapter 33, verses 13 to 18. Jeremiah 33, 13, it says, In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the low land, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Verse 14, Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. So, what can we understand about the salvation of Israel in light of that particular passage? What are some big general statements you can say about this salvation? They're going to reinstitute the sacrificial system, it looks like. There will be Levitical priests at this time, right? Yeah. To offer burnt offerings, burn grain offerings, prepare Which sacrifices. Which has not happened since 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. Yeah, and even then you have to question what really was going on at that time. The intertestamental Judaism got pretty interesting. And uh, the Jews who rejected Jesus had some interesting practices.
2: David is going to have it on the throne.
0: A capital B branch. This is back in verse 15. A righteous branch of David will spring forth, and he will rule. Is this a comprehensive salvation. Any stone left unturned in this salvation? No. God says, this is my word to them, and I will fulfill it. Verse 14, I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken. It's pretty amazing. All right, Zechariah, we need to move much more quickly. I'm sorry that I'm blasting you like a fire hose today. But Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 9. Dean, go ahead.
2: Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women, rubbish, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when like he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountains will Move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to now Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, King of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones will be with him. And that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about in the evening time. There will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the Eastern Sea and the other half towards the Western Sea.
0: And it will be in summer as well as in
2: winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord
0: will be the only one, his name, the only man. Wow. Verse nine is a great verse to memorize or highlight. Whatever you do in your Bible, put a star next to it. Great, great verse. We've now left the great promises of restoration in Jeremiah, and we've entered back into a time of tribulation for Israel that comes before this time of restoration. And we have to ask the question how is this particular tribulation that Zechariah talks about for Jerusalem different from all others in history? As you start reading it, especially verse 2, it sounds like it could be related a bit to 70 AD, but. Verse 2 and into verse 3, you have some unique elements that make this different from all other tribulations in world history. What are those unique elements? Look down at your text and find them. All the nations. All right, verse 2, it's not just one nation against Jerusalem. Do you see that? It's all the nations against Jerusalem. Now, that is pretty wild. Jerusalem's quite outnumbered there, aren't they? One city versus all the nations. Okay, what else? Especially as you get into verse 3. <clears throat> the, Lord will God fight. the Lord himself will manifest his presence in battle. That's pretty unique, wouldn't you say? <laughs> That's pretty unique. Now, there are, there are certain elements of this in the Old Testament. The Lord, of course, fought for Israel. You have Joshua in that great scene seeing the commander of the Lord's army. But this is a special, explicit presence of God tabernacling among them in battle. And what happens to Israel when Yahweh arrives, when the Lord arrives? What happens? All right, so you have this amazing event with the Mount of Olives. His feet stand on it, so this is a physical presence. His feet stand on the mountain, and it splits. The mountain separates. For what purpose? <laughs> In order to accomplish what? An escape route, right? Yes. Verse five: You will flee by the valley of my mountains. So Jerusalem, the Jews, are being persecuted. A time of great tribulation. The Lord shows up. He provides them a way of escape, a, a way of safety. And then, what does the Lord do? I'll take the holy ones with
3: them.
0: Good says at the end of verse 5, The Lord, my God, He will come and all the Holy Ones with Him. And then His enemies will defeat Him, right? No, then the Lord wins. And what is He establishing when He arrives? Particularly dwelling on that last verse, verse 9. What is established? What is the result of this? He is King over all the earth. Because remember... Who was fighting against Jerusalem? All the nations. nations. And who loses this battle? All the nations. nations. So there's one king left. God himself. And we're still waiting for that day, aren't we? This day's coming. Andy. So this is reminiscent of Revelation. Where it says that a living river, right? The living water will be flowing from the throne, right? Yep. That's what you see in in verse eight. Eight. 8, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the east, half to the west. Yeah, what an amazing day. And what you have to make note of here, too, is from that time of the Babylonian captivity, because if you can remember Israel's history, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Assyrians took the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, hung in there for a couple hundred years after the northern kingdom fell. And they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And they went into that captivity for 70 years. From that time forward, it has been the times of the Gentiles in Israel. It's been the times of the Gentiles in Jerusalem. This is a time that Jesus talks about in Luke 19. When he was making reference to that time of 70 AD when the Romans were going to come and plunder Jerusalem. He said, it's going to keep being plundered until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so you have back in Jeremiah... With the Babylonian captivity, the times of the Gentiles really beginning. And now you have this prophecy from Zechariah of the times of the Gentiles ending. All the pagan nations, all the Gentile nations are going to be at odds with Jerusalem and they will lose. Their time is going to end. And Jesus, the king of the Jews, is going to reign over them in his land. And he's going to be king over all the earth. What an amazing story that God's putting together here. Okay, Romans 11, Jerry has that, Romans 11, 25 to 29, we just looked at this a few weeks ago, go ahead Jerry.
2: I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own destination, and Partial impartial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is the covenant, this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the Father's gifts
0: so, Paul here is talking about ethnic Israel, and I have on this older PowerPoint, you can go back to the beginning of this section in chapter 9, but I'll say now, you can also go back to the lessons that we taught on this just a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 11, where we talked through this in great detail. Paul is speaking of ethnic Israel being saved. All Israel will be saved. And to answer this question, why aren't they saved now? Well, of course, it says in the text that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Why isn't all Israel saved right now? Well, because God has has applied to them a partial hardening. And that's why they're not all saved. Well, when will all Israel be saved? When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and that partial, partial hardening is removed. So this is God's business and God's program in building His people through these different kingdom programs, starting with the nation of Israel, then going to the all nations church and then back to the nation of Israel a partial hardening has been applied to them and it will be removed when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in and when we ask what is the basis for God saving them what does it say in verses 28 and 29 there are two main reasons why what? God's
3: choice
0: verse 28 God's choice according to the fathers this is just God's choice this is why it's happening God has chosen it to ha- uh, chosen that it would happen. And then the other, it's tied into it, but oh, verse 29. Calling is irrevocable. Good. The nature of God's choice is that it's irrevocable. Has not the Lord said it and will he not do it? Have you seen that phrase over and over again in Scripture? Has not God said and will he not do it? Well, God has said and he will do it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, I'm going to put up a bunch of passages there for you. If you want to look at other passages that speak to Israel's future salvation and restoration, you can check out some of these. You can use your phone to take a picture if that's quicker. Uh, There are lots and lots of passages you could go to, but these are just a few I've chosen to highlight. Particularly, Ezekiel 36 and 37 are are potent on this point. But even all the way back in the Torah, Moses and Deuteronomy 4, that's a, a key passage as well. These are passages that speak to ethnic Israel being saved, being restored. Okay? Now I can go back to these slides at the end because I've got another one to give you where you're going to jot some stuff down. This is the New Testament list of passages that talk about Israel, ethnic Israel being saved and restored in the New Testament. If I could pick out a couple just from this list, I would point you to Acts chapter 3. I think that one is extremely important. And also, of course, Romans 11, the whole chapter really but uh, there's quite a bit in the New Testament as well that speak to ethnic Israel's future salvation and restoration. Okay, I'm going to leave this up for about 30 more seconds, and then we'll have to move on to the next thing. Remember, we're tornadoes today. Got to go quickly, because this is the last lesson on eschatology before getting back into the book of Romans. Next week, we'll just be in Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. That'll be a a sweet study. A lot to see in just three verses. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 if you're in a position to turn. Revelation chapter 3 is where we'll be next. Because we've been talking now uh, this whole class period, the first half of this class, we've been talking about ethnic Israel being saved. Our launching off point was Revelation 7, the 144,000 coming to know the Lord. Well, what happened to the church was that the church was raptured. The church was caught up to be with the Lord Jesus Christ before the tribulation began. And I want to give you a few texts that speak to that event and uh, give you some basis as to why we believe that. Starting in Revelation 3. As mentioned previously, the church is not found during the detailed tribulation period in Revelation. You have a lot of talk about Israel. In that tribulation period, and this is chapters 6 to 18, so we're talking 13 chapters about the tribulation. You have a lot of talk about Israel, zero mentions of the church. Instead of the church sending out gospel preachers into the world, you have an angel flying overhead and proclaiming the gospel. This is a unique time on the face of the earth. And you have 144,000 Jews getting saved. You have two witnesses. You have all of these amazing events happening that are unique to that period. And the church is not present. That is perhaps the strongest evidence that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. From my perspective, I think that might be the strongest argument. You just read the flow of the book of Revelation. The church is there in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Church is mentioned a lot in chapters 1, 2, and 3. By the time you get to the tribulation, no mention of the church. The church is not found in those passages because God is going to remove His bride from the earth before He pours out His wrath on it. And the first passage I want you to look at is Revelation 3.10. Jesus is speaking to the church at Philadelphia. And would someone read just that one verse for us? Revelation 3.10. Because
2: you have kept the word of my perseverance,
1: I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the
0: earth. All right. There's a lot of debate about these churches in Revelation, the seven churches. There are people who have all kinds of different views on this. But if we just dwell on this verse, I think we'll start to understand some more about what these churches represent. These were historical churches in Asia Minor. These aren't made-up churches. These were seven real churches, but what is spoken to them doesn't just have an application in the first century when they existed. What was spoken to them actually has application to the people of God as a whole in different ways. And let's just look at this verse and break it down. Look at verse 10 and tell me what is the purpose of this hour? Jesus speaks of an hour and what is the purpose of the hour? Not the object who, who this happens to, but just the general purpose of the hour. Right. Trial, testing. You see that? It's the hour of testing. And now, who's it applied to? The, world. the whole world. It's applied to the whole world. What good news then was delivered to the church in Philadelphia in light of this hour of testing that comes upon the whole world? Yeah. They will be spared. They will be kept from this hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. The, the verbiage here is literally the it's the Greek word ek, means out of. They will be out of that hour of testing. And what's the condition that Jesus offers? He starts off the verse by saying, Because what? Because you've kept my word, you will be kept from the hour of testing. There's a condition. Not everyone will be kept from this hour of testing, but those who have kept His word. And who is sparing whom here? It's pretty basic, but who who is sparing Jesus. whom? Okay, <laughs> is sparing? Is sparing His people? There you go. Jesus Christ is sparing His people from the hour of testing that comes upon the whole earth. So when you just take that that verse and you think, what is Jesus communicating to them? He's actually communicating something to them that applies even to us. It it springs forth even to us. There is coming an hour of testing upon the whole world. It hasn't happened yet. This great tribulation that Revelation goes on to describe. And God's people who keep his word, they are the ones who are going to be preserved, spared, kept from, taken out of the world before this hour of testing comes upon the world. Now I want to work backwards through the New Testament to look at three more passages, so I need three more volunteers to read. Who can get 2 Thessalonians 2? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who can get that one? Joseph, great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, who can get Katrina? 1 Thessalonians 4, and then one more, John 14, the Gospel of John 14, Andy. Very good. So let's all turn as we work backwards now to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and Joseph if you would please read for us verses 3 to 8 uh, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes forth and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know that you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. <clears throat> For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. All right. We have in verse 3, the first verse Joseph read, it says, It will not come. It's speaking of the day of the Lord. If you go just back to the verse before, it's saying that the day of the Lord will not come unless certain things happen first. And what does it say in verse 3? Must happen first? The apostasy and the man of lawlessness who's going to rule in this day... When the day of the Lord begins, the man of lawlessness is going to rule for a time. He's going to be lifted up. It says that he can't rule right now for a certain reason. Look at verse 6. Why can't the man of lawlessness do his work right now, according to verse 6 or 7? Good. There's a restraining aspect pertaining to the man of lawlessness. He's being held back. He cannot rise up and rule because there's a restrainer. Now, the passage, of course, doesn't tell us what the restrainer is, but it does tell us that a restrainer exists. Some will say this is in reference to the Holy Spirit through God's church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As God's church is on the face of the earth, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world. And when the church is removed in the rapture, then the Holy Spirit then, as the restrainer, is taken away. There's no restraint over this man of lawlessness. Some say that it's speaking of the church itself. You don't need to jump to the Holy Spirit. It's just speaking of the church. The church is the restraining force in the world. As we go out and we're salt and light in the earth, once the church is removed, then it's only darkness. It's only bitterness in the world. And the man of lawlessness is able to reign. There are others who say that the restrainer is some sort of civil restraint. That by God's common grace in establishing governments in the world... People are restrained, and one of these days God is just going to remove his hand of common grace. And so basically God's hand of common grace is the restrainer. Well, I believe one of those first two options is the best solution here. It's referring to a singular masculine he that will be taken out of the way. The restrainer will be removed. And whether you say that's the church, whether you say it's the Holy Spirit, I think that's the notion here. Is that God is going to remove his people from the face of the earth. And then the man of lawlessness will be able to have great power over the people. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians now. And we'll take uh, some questions after looking at John 14. But 1 Thessalonians 4. And Katrina, would you read 13 to 17? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17.
3: But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. These two sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For, these, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead of Christ will rise first. Then
0: we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. All right. Therefore, let's comfort one another with those words, right? This is where we get the word rapture. It's not a Greek word. It's not an English word that's found in our text. But the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo is rapturo. So we get it from the Latin. That's where our English word rapture comes from. The word means to be caught up. And this passage, of course, says that God's people will be caught up together with him in the air. This is pretty fascinating stuff, isn't it? The dead will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. I pointed out last week from 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll point it out again here. Notice in verse 17, Paul does say we. It seems like there was an expectation in Paul's day that this would happen in his lifetime. That's how every Christian is supposed to live, isn't it? We do not know the day or the hour. And so we are to live as though Jesus may come today. Jesus may come before we finish our next sentence, right? (laughs) He can come at any moment. And so Paul here has this view toward we are going to be raptured. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now I want you to glance over the first section of chapter 5. I'm just going to point out a few verses He now changes the subject slightly to discuss the day of the Lord. He starts off in verse 1 by saying, As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Verse 3, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains come upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. Notice the pronoun shift. Paul said we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with God. They are going to suffer destruction. When the day of the Lord comes, it hasn't come yet. When that day comes, it will be a time of destruction for them. Not for us, but for them. And drop down to verse 9. I love this verse. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this destruction and this wrath spoken of in chapter 5 is not for us. It's for them. And for that to happen on the face of the earth, that's where it's going to happen. We need to be removed, don't we? We need to be taken out of the way. And then suddenly wrath, destruction will come upon them. Okay? One more passage we'll look at and then we'll discuss some questions. That's John 14, verses 1 to 4. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. When you got it, go ahead, Andy. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And this, of course, sets up Thomas for that question to which Jesus replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. Amazing passage. But look at verse 3. That's where we're going to focus for a moment. Verse 3. It's important to note that Jesus is bringing comfort to his disciples in this passage. The purpose of Jesus speaking here in this passage is to bring comfort. Comfort to them. Verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he goes on to tell them what he's going to do. He says that when he returns, he's going to receive his followers to himself. He will take his people from the earth to be with him. As you notice, where are they going? Into his father's house. In his father's house are many dwelling places. That's the promise of comfort to us. And when he returns, he's going to receive us. We go to him and he receives us. And then we enter into our father's house for a time of great comfort. And at the time that we're receiving comfort, there's a time, of course, then of the Bema seat judgment, rewards and things of that nature, leading up to a marriage supper of the lamb. While we're feasting and being comforted, the world is suffering great destruction Wrath and destruction being poured out on the face of the earth. It's the day of the Lord. And he will return with his holy ones to finish the battle. Pretty amazing stuff there, isn't it? Jesus is not speaking of the resurrection of believers here. He's not speaking of coming to life and reigning with him for a thousand years. He says he's going to receive his disciples and take them into his father's house. It's a time that's distinct from those other events. Okay? The rapture, therefore, must be distinguished from the second coming. Scripture describes these as different events. And I'll give you your blanks for the chart that you have in front of you here in a moment. But I'll stop here and see if you have any thoughts or questions. Of course you have thoughts or questions. Any thoughts or questions you'd like to share at this moment? And uh, we can take a few minutes for that. Good exercise this morning, isn't it? All right, you guys are making it easy. Very good. Well, let's fill out that chart that you have. What are the differences between the rapture and the second coming? First, in the rapture, you have Jesus coming to the clouds. That's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. He comes to the clouds and stops. And then we are caught up together within the clouds. In the second coming, as Dean read earlier in Zechariah, Jesus comes to the earth and he reigns on the earth. His feet touch the Mount of Olives in the second coming. You don't have that happening in 1 Thessalonians 4, do you? You don't have that happening in John 14. But in the second coming, Jesus comes to earth and he reigns on the earth. In the rapture, you have Jesus gathering his church. Interestingly, in the second coming, you have the angels gathering the elect. If you remember back in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen when he returns. He says, the angels are going to gather my elect, or the elect, from the four corners of the earth. That's what happens at the second coming. But in the rapture, we go directly to Jesus, don't we? He receives us to himself, and we enter into our Father's house. I hope there's the right number of lines. I might kind of remember when I've taught this before. There was a I was disconnected from the sheet. Hopefully not. In the rapture, as we just read in John 14, Christ comes to reward and to comfort his people. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will receive you to myself. And we're going to enter into that place with Jesus Christ. A time of great comfort. In the second coming, of course, Christ comes to strike down and to judge. He's the rider on the horse. Sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are a flame of fire. His robe is dipped in blood. That's pretty different from the rapture, isn't it? It's different. In the rapture, believers depart from the earth. In the second coming, unbelievers depart from the earth. (laughs) You know the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares that Jesus told? The wheat and the tares grow up together. You've got good plants and weeds growing up together. Jesus says when he returns, it's not the good plant that's going to be removed, but the tares will be removed and thrown into the fire. That's referring to the second coming. When you have the women grinding at the mill, one is taken and the other one left. That's the second coming, not the rapture. You have the tares being removed at that point, and the wheat remains. Okay. One more. In the rapture, the church receives glorified bodies, and in the second coming, the church returns with glorified bodies. How did His holy ones get to be with Him as He returns in the second coming? They his holy army is with Him. Perhaps there are angels involved, but it's not just angels. Jesus comes back in the second coming with His glorified church. That's because we were raptured beforehand and received our glorified bodies before we returned with Him. These are separate events. Many different passages in Scripture lay that out. Okay? Now do you have any thoughts or questions you want to share? What more
2: people to?
0: <laughs> long answer or short answer I, got, I have to give you a short answer <laughs> testament priority do you read the new testament before the old testament or do you read the old testament before the new testament do you take the old testament at its word and have it guide your interpretation of the new testament or do you do it the other way around
2: You said uh lady grinding and one's taking
0: one's
2: left, that's that's not the rapture.
0: I was always really taught that. Correct. That is not the rapture. That's the second coming. Yep. It's co- commonly taught, especially at the lay level, that it's the rapture. Some scholars will say it's the rapture as well. I don't I don't see how you make that happen in Matthew twenty four. No. That whole chapter. into the twenty five is all second coming. It is all second coming. Yep. Okay, Amy. I have a question. Yes.
3: Second coming, um, the church returns with glorified bodies. Yep. Will it destroy every unbeliever at that point?
0: We, we won't just be spectators. Right. We'll right. be involved. Yeah.
3: But, but, but what happens to every unbeliever? Because that's not the end of the story. There's, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah, at that point...
0: Well, the vultures will be gathering where carcasses are. So,
3: <laughs> they will be slain. Yeah. Is it taking out everybody then? So the only thing that will be left are believers?
0: Yes. So what, what you have at the end is... Because uh, this leads up to the sheep and goat judgment before the millennium. After the tribulation, before the millennium. At that sheep and goat judgment, you only have sheep entering into the millennium. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And And those who are unbelievers, though they're slain physically you have at the end of the thousand years, they will be resurrected and they will go to the great white throne judgment. Last week, we looked a little bit in the tribulation and how
1: uh, destructive the tribulation is going to be. We're going to have stars falling out of the earth. The whole topography of the earth is going to be changed. Mountains are going to be leveled. Uh, Rivers are going to be completely deformed. And the the unbelievers are going to be uh, eradicated Well, we're going to have a completely new, not completely new world. That comes later, but the millennium is going to look completely different from what we know now. Yep.
0: So right after this comes judgment, and then millennium. So after the second coming, yes, comes the sheep and goats judgment, and then you have the millennium. Which you know, it's so interesting. The only passage that we're going to look at it momentarily. The only passage where we get millennium is Revelation twenty. So, if you're more comfortable because of that, just saying a time of Messiah's reign, you could say that, because we have a ton of passages that talk about an explicit messianic kingdom on the face of the earth. We just have that time period in one passage. And that's when that's going to happen, where you have all the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 2, especially toward the end of Isaiah, there's a lot there, Jeremiah, all those prophecies we read about for Israel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, so on. You have all these promises that will come to fruition at that time. And then at the end, Satan will be released because he's bound at the beginning. He's released. And he gathers his people who are willing to go against Christ for one final battle. And where those people come from is an interesting theological quagmire that we could talk through some other time. But he gathers them and then there's one final battle where Christ wins, hands over the kingdom to the Father and we transition into the new heaven and new earth where the Father has made all things new. Rex?
2: I think you'll cover it next in
0: Revelation 20. Yes. Good. Okay. Well, let's all go to Revelation 19. Two passages more to look at. Revelation 19, this is the second coming, the most explicit passage on the second coming. And would someone read those 11 verses for us? Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Who's that? Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Okay
3: From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yep. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead Come, gather for the great supper of God. Eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in, his, in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his name. Its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with
0: their flesh. What happens to their bodies, Amy? There you go. Gorged. We get fat birds. <laughs> so now look at verse 14 with me real quick, because what we have here, Jesus is returning to the earth with his people. And look at verse 14. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Jesus on white horses. Who are these people? Well, just look back up to verse 8, same chapter. Verse 8 At the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, you have the bride clothing herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is God's church that he's returning with. How did his church get up there in heaven? We were raptured before this time of tribulation. There we were, joining him at the marriage supper and then returning with him, riders on white horses. Okay? Do you see the distinguishing elements of the second coming in this passage as opposed to the rapture? I hope you do. You see Jesus physically coming all the way back, you see battle taking place, striking down people. Establishing his kingdom by judging and pouring out wrath and destruction on the face of the earth. All that's going on here, and that's second coming language. That's not rapture language. Okay? One last passage, I'll read this. We just go right into the very next verse. Then, stop. What does then tell us? Okay. After. This time of Jesus' return and striking down the nations. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark of, uh, on their forehead or, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. How long is a thousand years? One day day after (laughs) (laughs) 199.9. Okay, yeah, we'll take it. (laughs) How long is a thousand years? thousand years. thousand Literal thousand years. In God's timing, yeah, you're right, Sam. It's a day, isn't it? <laughs> you have this thousand years being repeated over and over and over again, and it happens after His return. If it doesn't mean a thousand years, you don't know what it means. A thousand years is a thousand years. When Jesus returns, he will rule over his people for a millennium. Ethnic Israel will be saved, and we will all worship Christ as king in his explicit physical kingdom. Okay? Now to close, I'm going to go through these very quickly because we have just two or three minutes here. I want to give you an overview of what we believe and then throw up some other ones that we don't believe, just so you have an idea. We believe that right now we're in the church age. The next thing on God's prophetic timeline, God's calendar, is the rapture of the church. It's an imminent thing. It can happen at any moment. And after that, there will be a treaty signed. This is going back to Daniel chapter 9, where there's a man who's going to make a treaty for seven years. And in the middle of that uh, seven years, he's going to break it. But Israel's going to be saved. This is outlined in Revelation 6 to 18, all leading up to what we just read, the second coming of Christ, And we enter into a literal millennium. That's what we believe, big picture, at this church. However, there are some people, and just keep watching the screen, watch what happens to rapture. Some people who believe that. We aren't raptured before, but we're raptured in the middle of the seven years. This is the mid tribulation view or the pre wrath view. They believe that God's wrath is explicitly poured out in the second half of the tribulation after the man breaks the covenant. And so we'll be raptured before that time. Keep watching what happens to rapture. There are some people who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. We go through the seven-year tribulation. And then at the end of that, we go up to meet Christ in the clouds just to turn right back around and come with him. And so there's no space of time where the church is out for all of Revelation 6 to 18. But the church actually lives through that. And at the end, we go up and come right back down. And I don't know if the marriage supper happens in that brief moment when we're up there or how that happens, but that's the post trib view. Then there's a view. You see, we're making a big change here. Historic premillennialism. They still believe in a literal millennium. So start back here. They believe there's a second coming literal millennium. We agree with them on that. But they believe that there's a metaphorical... ...type of tribulation that's just continually happening to the church. There's not a literal seven-year period. It extends for the entire life of the church. Revelation 6-18 through is essentially happening now symbolically, metaphorically, however you want to describe it. And they believe at the end of this time, right before the second coming, that Israel will be converted. They, like the post-trib people, they do believe, of course, that we'll go up to the clouds and come right back around. But that this tribulation lasts basically for the entire life of the church. And then the, uh, the millennium is literal, but this is not. The tribulation is not. All millennialists believe that there's during the they get simpler and simpler as we go on, and that's what's appealing about these other systems. The A-Millennialists believe that the church age is happening now, and simultaneously there's a symbolic tribulation and millennium. Both happening right now. It's not sequential, it's not tribulation, then millennium. But basically, symbolically, we are going through tribulation and we are in the millennial kingdom as it is right now. thousand years is is just a symbolic number that means completeness or wholeness. It's not a literal thousand years. Then you have the post-millennialist belief that the tribulation pretty much all happened here in the first century, culminating in 70 AD. A lot of amillennialists will believe that too. That it all happened here. And then we've now entered into this age that it's the millennial age symbolically. But they believe uh, differently from the all-millennialists. All-millennialists think that it's all still going downhill until the coming of Christ. Post-millennialists believe since the tribulations behind us, the church is going to grow and grow and grow and conquer the world. And the world's going to become Christianized leading to the return of Christ. And they take passages like the Great Commission. The Great Commission that says, Make disciples of all the nations. And it's they say no, it's disciple the nations. So that national governments should be converted, that the nations themselves will be discipled as a whole to be Christian. So Jesus killing what is
2: sort of is not
0: God Things get to be symbolic. Whenever, whenever you enter into that realm, lots of things can just be uh, symbolic. Now here's one for you that's heretical, okay? I even added the cool little, woo! all right. (laughs) They believe that Jesus came back in 70 AD. That everything in Revelation happened, fulfilled in 70 AD. And now we're in a symbolic new heaven and new earth. (laughs) (laughs) Brandon's
2: alive? <laughs> <laughs> this is where Sean
0: McCraney is today, if you're familiar with that name. This is what he believes, okay? All right, so now back to this. This is what we believe. This is what we teach here. And uh, that's what we just went through the last few weeks. We have no time for anything else. Next week, we're going to Romans. I'll pray. And uh, we'll head over to the auditorium. Father, thank you so much that you are king, that you have sovereignly put this story together, that you will win, and that we will be right there with you, sharing in victory because of King Jesus. God, give us a sweet time of praise and worship and fellowship today that you would be lifted up in every heart and that you would be rightly honored in all the things that we say and do and think for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.